Welcome to the 11 o'clock online gathering. It's exciting. Of course, after the worship and some time, we're going to be going over to hear the message in Colossians. We're in our second sermon in the series. Hasn't it been exciting? Just to explore the supremacy of Christ, understand that he is the head of all creation. And as you prepare your heart and as you step into this time, our prayer is that you will truly be blessed. And our prayer is that as you listen to the sermon coming from the campuses, that that sermon will encourage you. I know it will bless you and speak to you powerfully. So let's have some worship. But before we start, let me pray. Father, thank you that we can gather right now. And we pray, Lord, that you will encourage us, that you will bless us, that we will know your heart and your joy flooding through us, Lord. And we pray that the message of Colossians will impact our heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the worship. Good morning, Willow Park Church. Lovely to have you with us today. We're going to worship Jesus together. First song is God of our salvation. And it said, God so loved his children, he gave his only son, Jesus, that we might be forgiven and death has been overcome. That's not a good reason to get out of your chair right now and start worshiping Jesus and clapping your hands and dancing around a bit. I don't know what is. So let's go. You have come. 
mercies have I beheld in the master of wind and violent seas. You beckon me out to waters deep. I'm fearful, Lord, but I'll keep my eyes fixed on you. That's our prayer during this song. We're going to make Jesus our rock and our foundation and be steadfast in him. Mercies have I beheld in thee, master of wind and violent seas. You beckon me out to waters deep. I'm fearful.
Lord, we want to fix our eyes on you. We want you to be our vision. We want you to be our best thought by day or by night. Holy Spirit, help us. Lead us into all truth so that we can better fix our eyes on Jesus, our Savior.
Lord, that's our prayer, that you would be our vision, that you would be the one that we fix our eyes on, that you would be the foundation that we build our lives upon so that we are always getting all the glory back to you, that anything that we get from how we live and how we reflect you goes back to you, that when people see you in us, they would glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be that way this week, this day, in our families, in our workplaces, in our places of influence, that you would be seen in everything that we do and say, and even in our inner lives, that that would reflect you too. And your Holy Spirit would draw us into a better and closer relationship with you and a better reflection of Jesus every day for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your service. We appreciate you so much that you have logged on. You've taken time to join us online and that you are interested in the life of Willow Park Church. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the way that you give. If you're new, can I encourage you to click the connect button and we can make contact with you. We can help you become part of our in-person community and also our online community because community is important. And as we step towards the emblems and maybe take a moment to go and get the bread and the wine, but as you go and pause for a moment, can I encourage you that through the death and the resurrection of Christ, God created a new community. The church is unique, you know. And if you're a believer, you're part of the body of Christ. People say to me, Pastor Phil, why is the church so important? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, the church was in God's heart before the creation of the world. Ephesians tells us that, that God had a plan, that even before the creation of all things, God knew the plan to send the Lord Jesus Christ. And where Christ came, his bride came and his church came. See, the church is rooted in God's heart. I don't mean organisational dysfunction or the pain that has been created by large denominations. I mean the beauty of you and I fellowshipping together within our relationship with Christ. It is a one-of-a-kind organisation. And here at Communion, we are commanded to be together. We're commanded to break bread because it's a one-of-a-kind organisation. It is the instrument that God has chosen to reflect the love of Christ, to reflect his hands and feet in this time. Also, the church, thirdly, is eternal. And when we move on to eternity and we gather around the throne of God, worshipping, how it will be wonderful with all the saints that have come through the great tribulation, all the saints that are washed in the blood of Christ, that we worship God together the bride, the church. So thank you for joining us. And we are the body of Christ. But his body was broken for us so that we could receive salvation. He gave his life so that we could be forgiven. 
And so now, here is the bread. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we look at this bread, this wafer, we are reminded that you came into the world whole. That you lived amongst men and you brought good news of the kingdom of God. But you chose and you embraced the journey of the cross. And you were broken so that we may be healed. You paid the price for the sins of humanity. So friends, the body of Christ broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same manner, he took the cup. And this is the blood of the new covenant that takes away the sins of the world. Drink it. Come now. And as we take a sip of this, we remember that we have been made clean. That he has paid the price. That the great exchange has taken place. He has taken my unrighteousness, and replaced it with his righteousness. And he has taken my unrighteousness and he has dealt with the power of sin and death. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the Son, for the gift of forgiveness, the love of God that has filled our hearts. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to hear of all the news that is going on across our network now with our Willow One News. And after that, enjoy the message because Colossians will set us on fire for Jesus. Hi church family, my name is Courtney and I'm on staff here at Willow Park Church. Here is your family news for this week. On October 31st from 5 to 7 p.m. we are going to be offering a fun, family-friendly, trunk-or-treat drive-through event for our community here at our mission location. In order to do this, we need your help. First, you can help by donating bags of candy and dropping them off at the church on Sunday or at the church office during the week. Another way you can help is to decorate your car, dress up, and hand out candy on the night of the event. We will also need volunteers for setup, takedown, parking, and more. Please sign up to help on our website and consider buying lots of candy next time you're at Costco. Willow Park Clubs is for kids in kindergarten to grade five, and this program began this last week. At clubs, kids meet new friends and have lots of fun learning about Jesus through crafts, games, music, and more. We still have space for your kids to join, so sign up today on our website or by using the Church Center app. On another note, we are currently looking to fill a couple of employment positions here at the church. We are hiring someone to join our custodial team as well as our tech team. For more information on these opportunities, please visit our website. There are so many ways you can get connected here at Willow Park Church. 
with many groups meeting throughout the week. So please be sure to subscribe to our email updates on our website, as we will be sending all the details to your inbox every Sunday after the morning service. That is all for our family news. Thanks and have a wonderful week. Okay, Colossians 1, verse 15 to 23. And if you're reading off your phone app, it's from the ESV version. Colossians 1, verse 15. The preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Allison. Oh. Well, I love preaching the Word of God, and there are times when you approach a scripture, and we're going through Colossians, as Allison just read, a phenomenal book. Many of you have committed to reading this book every day, all the way through October, and uh, so by now you should have read it. Oh, I know. How many times? Where are we up to? I don't know. Ten times. And it starts getting into your soul, starts getting into your bones, and, uh, and it's a good thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a scripture passage this morning that really is just, uh, from a preacher's point of view, you just feel like you're skimming the surface. And so like a really nice buffet, uh, we go along the table and we're just going to take bits off the table and to enjoy, to, uh, to kind of just meditate on and think about, and by skipping over other parts of the table, it's not a comment on whether that food is good or not. It's all good. Uh, it's just we've only got a certain amount of time. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 is where we're going to start in a second. What Paul has been doing is he's been, uh, he, he's been making some mic-dropping statements. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, when you just say something that is really dramatic, and then you drop the mic, and then you leave the say, I don't even know where that, that 
expression comes from. But Paul is the master at mic-dropping statements. Look, look at this. This is the first part, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things. These are all universal statements. And he's unapologetic. He's saying this is the way it is. You can like it, as we say in Britain. You can like it or lump it. You can take it or not. This is the truth. Drop the mic. And then he moves on. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body. And then he goes, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. We're going to jump into this a little deeper in a second. But he's making these massive statements about this man, Jesus Christ. He's ultimately saying in this passage that Jesus is everything for everyone and is over all. And our culture, our society, loves this. Oh, they love it when Christians say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and through him, and only by him, you can get to the Father. They love it. They just think it's great, right? Not so much. Not so much. We live in a, and we talked about Gnosticism last week, we really live in a society that is very pluralistic. That you just take a little bit of whatever you want, you throw it together, and you make something that suits you. And that was very much the time that Paul was living in, uh, sorry, speaking to in, in Colossae. He was saying, look, the Gnostics will say just, yeah, Jesus is great, but add him to everything else. We know better. That was the culture then, that is the culture now. And then you've got this uh, syncretism that's going on as well, this trying to harmonize all these different views and beliefs together. Whatever is good for you. You, let's see, let's see if these, uh, you recognize any of these statements. What's good for you is good for you. You live your truth. You be you. These are all kind of pluralistic statements that you just, you just live your own truth. We're not going to judge you. But for goodness sake, please do not say there is only one way. And yet Paul immediately goes in and goes, look, there's one way. It is what it is. And he's following the tracks of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This does, like, just slam into the face of culture. For example, Oprah Winfrey, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Gandhi himself said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. It's pluralism. It's just take whatever you want to take, throw it together, what is good. You live your truth. Nobody's going to judge you. But please do not say that Jesus is the only way because that is exclusive. Our culture says this. You can't say that your religion is the only way. That's exclusive because there are lots of ways. The irony is that is a way. That is an exclusive statement. Is it not? I have a particular view of God, and you must adopt it and abandon your view. That is exclusive as well. That's our culture, our angle, our look. This is the culture speaking about religion and spirituality is correct, and you need to adopt it. And then Pastor Glenn comes in and goes, well, that's an exclusive view. Look at what Oprah Winfrey said. I'm not criticizing Oprah Winfrey because all she's doing is saying what our culture believes. So let's not, let's not get all tough on Oprah Winfrey. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Is that not one way? 
Is that not a way in itself? So she's actually contradicting. She's, she's exclusively contradicting herself by making that statement. And our culture's like that. And so we as Christians step into this culture and we want to make sure we do everything we can to show our culture the love of Jesus and to speak truth and to stand on the shoulders of Paul and, and Jesus and say, actually, Jesus is the only way and, 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 and we need to do it in a way that is respectful and loving and kind. But Paul gives us an insight on how to do it in a masterful way. Because in the middle of all this pluralistic viewpoint that his culture had and our culture had, because everybody has an exclusive set of beliefs, every one of you believes that you've got an angle on truth that is correct. That's not a criticism. That's just being called human. You have an exclusive set of beliefs. The trick is, is your exclusive set of beliefs about spirituality and religion and Jesus Is it an exclusive set of beliefs that ultimately is going to bring you life and hope and eternity and all those things that you long for? Is your exclusive set of beliefs the right set of beliefs? So what does Paul do? And this is where this passage is just mind-blowing. What does he do? What's his answer in this pluralistic culture? In other words, think of it this way, Christian friend, think of it this way. What should our response be in this pluralistic culture that says you can't say that Jesus is the only way? What should our response be? Do you know what Paul did? He writes a poem. And I'm not even joking. He writes one of the most ancient, beautiful poems that you can find in history. This scripture that Alison beautifully read is a poem. He writes poem. Can you imagine if as a church we decided our main way of answering culture's questions about Jesus was just to sit down one night and just write poetry? I think that, well, that was two of you who thought that would be a good idea. Some of you are like, I can't string a few sentences together without using Grammarly. I don't know where I'd be with poem, but this is what Paul does. He writes a poem and says this, look at how amazing Jesus is. And then he makes these mic-dropping statements all the way through it. He doesn't explain it. He just says, look, this is the way. He makes Jesus as attractive as he possibly can, and then he lets the Holy Spirit do the work. Let me encourage you. For those of you who've got loved ones in your life who don't know Jesus, who may believe that their exclusive set of beliefs, because we all have them, are the right ones, and it's not Jesus, and you are genuinely feeling the angst and the tension of having someone in your life who's not only maybe not interested, but maybe he's just really angry about it, what should your response be? Write poetry? Well, maybe, if you like to do that. But actually, the response should be, is for you to lift Jesus up Make him look great in your life. Speak about him in a way that makes him look like the most beautiful object of desire that a human can have. And then you let the Holy Spirit do its work, his work. Look what Paul said in Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation. It is his power that brings people to Jesus. I'm not ashamed, Paul said. I'm lifting him up. I don't even need to explain him to you. I'm just going to lift him up and let him do his work. Spurgeon said, him trying to explain, I'm paraphrasing, him trying to explain the Bible and explain God is like trying to explain a roaring lion. Just let God be God. You live out your life that, like he is that roaring lion and let God do everything else. 
That's his job. Let God do the work that he's best at. Let God do the work that he's best at. I'm not, and this may come as a surprise to all of you, I'm not a good dancer. I do everything I can. At the end of weddings, I'm like, oh gosh. I'm so glad that it was Sarah's job to dance with Luke at the end of his wedding, not mine. Because on all sorts of levels, that would have been wrong. But the, the, just like the only thing people would have been talking about was, was the dad dance. I am not a dancer. I move around the stage a lot. I've told you before, my, uh, my, my watch is tracking my steps. I, I walk about three kilometers every preach. I'm not joking because I'm back and forth. I'm good at walking, not dancing. I'm not good at dancing at all. Never been much of a dancer. I don't get it from my mom and dad. I don't know. Maybe they are good dancing, but I'm not it. I can appreciate good dancing. I can appreciate when somebody really knows what they're doing and it looks beautiful. But one of the fun things to do is, is when somebody's dancing on, on, the, on your computer or you're watching, is if you switch the music off and then watch them, it starts looking a little bit ridiculous. Because now what you're doing is you're watching a human being flail around a lot, flapping their arms, twitching their legs, throwing their heads back. You don't have any rhythm. You don't hear the music. And it looks mad. Try it. It's really quite amusing, especially, dare I say it, I don't want to criticize anyone, but modern dance looks even more hilarious and mad if you switch the music off. Nietzsche, and by the way, when I quote people, this is just a little sidebar, when I quote people on stage, I'm not endorsing everything they say. I just put a quote up there by Oprah Winfrey. I don't endorse everything that Oprah Winfrey says. If the only people I ever quoted on stage were Christians, even then it would get problematic because I don't necessarily agree with every Christian writer's viewpoint on everything. But it's good to be able to say, look, this is what people are saying. And just because Nietzsche said, words to this effect, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. It's like Paul is dancing in his life to music that his hearers or his observers can't see. And yet he is dancing to a beautiful music that only he can hear. And as we look at this passage, it's like this is his music. This is the music that his life is dancing to. And just from observation, if you're not able to cue into that music, does not make that dance any less beautiful. And what we're doing as we step into this passage is we're listening to the music because the reality is, is that every one of us is dancing to some music. The, music, the question is, is, what is the music you are dancing to? Is it music that ultimately makes less of you and more of something powerful and more ultimate than you that is actually able and capable to save you and bring you that which your life is oriented towards anyway? Is the music that you are following, the music that you are dancing to, a music that ultimately is going to save you and bring you hope and peace and joy and all those beautiful things that we are promised through the scriptures that come through the music that we're about to look at? I'm not ashamed, Paul said. Like a good dancer is not ashamed of the dance. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So let's look at the music. 
Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This word image, icon, literally means photograph. So when you look at Jesus, what you're seeing is God. When you read about Jesus in the gospel, you're reading about the characteristics of God. It's also a word that was used when they would seal something, a legal document. Remember the wax in the medieval times where you'd drip wax on and then you'd seal it with a special crest and if it was broken, you knew that somebody had tampered with it? It's the same kind of word. What Paul is saying is when you look at Jesus and when you look at his life and you read about his life and you think about him, what you're actually seeing is God being made visible. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, seal of wax of his nature. Jesus is the portrait of God. So by rejecting Jesus, by Jesus' own words, you are rejecting God. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. His personal characteristics, his responses, his words, his, the way he acted around different people and different members of society, God's distinguishing marks. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When Paul said this to the Colossians, he knew that they would also think back to the scriptures in Genesis when he says that humans were created in the image of God. It's the same word, the imago Dei. It means that not only was Jesus a portrait of God, he said humanity was created to be the perfect manifestation of God. It does not say that we become God. That's a whole other team that we are not a member of. He says we become like God, the perfect manifestation of what it is to be human, that humanity as God designed it, how we were meant to be. If you're feeling angst this morning, if you're feeling any friction in life, if you're feeling like there's something more, let me give you the good news. That is the fingerprint of God on your soul that is drawing you to him. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says that every man, every human has been given eternity in their heart. You will never fill that vacancy outside of God because you were created for more than you are reaching for in this culture. You are better than that. You are more significant than that because you have the image, the icon of God on your life. And then he aligns Jesus. And he says, you want to know how you should live? Look at Jesus. You want to know how you should think? Look at Jesus. You want to know how you should act? Look at Jesus. Look at how he, uh, the, how he lived his life. What did he do on a regular basis? And the amazing thing is, is we can look at the Gospels and we can see exactly what it means to be like Jesus. Which is why every week I say, friends, read the Bible because we will take this in, this image of Christ into our minds, into our hearts, and we start being drawn to being more like him. The music continues. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. This idea of firstborn, it doesn't literally mean that Jesus is the first person to be created. As soon as they heard the word firstborn, they would know that it's actually a term of honor. It means the most important, that Jesus is the most important person in creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's Paul saying everything you can see and everything you can't see is for Jesus and was created by him. 
All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That creation itself, the universe itself, was created through him, for him, by him, and he holds it all together. Ah, what about science? Because we can read this, and we can go, well, yeah, Paul, if you didn't hear my message last week, Paul clearly didn't know what he was talking about because science tells us that actually there is no God. We don't need God in our world. We don't need God. In fact, God and all religion just causes problems. Science has proved that there is no God. Hmm. The American Association for the Advancement of Science took a recent poll and they found that 51%, and it's a number that is growing, of scientists believe in some sort of higher power. 31% believe in a personal God called Jesus. Jesus. Brilliant people, and I don't include myself in this, scientific, brilliant people still believe in Jesus. They still find a good reason to turn to Jesus. Alistair uh, McGrath, professor of Oxford, writer of The Twilight of Atheism, said this, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism survives only at a popular level. Code for social media, YouTube, media in general. Namely, the myth that an atheistic, fact-based religion, I love the fact that he called atheism a religion, because that's what it is. It's a faith in something else. Is permanently, sorry, let me read that again. The myth that an atheistic, fact-based religion is permanently at war with a faith-based religion. It's a myth. In fact, the more that you study the Bible and the more you study science, you actually see them, them actually pushing towards one another. Francis Collins, who is, and this is quite the title, he is the director, in fact, he's just recently, in the last few days, uh, resigned. Uh, he's moving on, but he was the director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. That is the top U.S. biomedical research agency. He was one of the founders, the uh, initiators of the Human Genome Project. He asked questions, actually, where did all this code come from? Where did the DNA code come from? I think there's something behind this, he said. I'm going to come back to Francis Collins in just a second. Alan Rex Sandage from the Washington Post, successor to Hubble, the greatest cosmologist of the 20th century, said this, It's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. Francis Collins, for me, this is the guy who is the human genome guy, which is, I think is a way better title than the one that I just read out. For me, that leap came in my 27th year. After a search to learn more about God's character led me to the person of Jesus Christ. Here was a person with a remarkably strong historical evidence of his life who made astounding statements about loving your neighbor and whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty, and I became a follower of Jesus. Arguably, one of the greatest scientists living today is a follower of Jesus. And we think, because we watched a three-minute YouTube video about atheism, that some kid in his mum's basement knows more about Francis Collins. 
because the media pushes a certain agenda when it comes to atheism and Christianity. The reality is there are brilliant people in this room who have followed science and medicine as their life's passion, but are equally passionate about there being a creator God, and his name is Jesus. And so Paul is actually ahead of some of these men that I'm I'm, uh, quoting this morning, because there's this gap. He was the beginning, and he is the end. He's the alpha. He's the omega. That is the music that Paul is dancing to, and that is the music that I want to dance harder to. So what does this dance look like in the light of this beautiful music? What Paul is saying, ultimately, that he who holds all things together which, by the way, is interesting, and I, and I don't know a lot about it, and some of you who are doctors and scientists, and, and you'll know way more than I do, obviously, but there is a big question about how even the atom is held together, that the space in between the elements in an atom, that there's this unknown, they're not actually sure how it's held together. And it's a nice thought as a Christian to think, I wonder whether literally on an atomic level what Paul is saying here is true, that Christ holds all things even on an atomic level, on a DNA level, together. So what? So this is a nice poem, Paul. So I can hear the music you're dancing to. Good for you. So what that Jesus was there at the beginning and created everything and holds it all together. All things are for him and to him and through him and, and, it's for, and ultimately he's the Alpha and Omega. So what? So what? Well, Paul is very unapologetically saying, that if Jesus is God's firstborn, then he should be our first too. He should be our first. See, and elsewhere in Paul's writing, we get more of an insight. He says this, same person, Paul, for from him, Jesus, and through him and to him are all things. You can see there the connection between Colossians. To him be glory forever. Amen. Then Paul tells us the so what? It is your reasonable service, Paul says, your logical, rational service. So in the light of all this, I'm just going to put it in kind of colloquial English terms. In the light of all this, you'd be daft not to follow him, is what Paul is saying. Because if he truly is the creator, if all things were made through him, for him, by him, and he holds it all together, If science and the smartest people on this planet are also saying there's something more, if somebody like Francis Collins is saying Jesus is the Lord of my life, if all this evidence is pushing towards Jesus Christ being all that he said he was, we'd be crazy not to follow him. It would be madness not to make him first. Because look, Paul says back in Colossians verse 18, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body. This is a section of the buffet that I'm not able to eat from this morning. I'd love to talk about this too, but the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's talking about his crucifixion and rising from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He needs, should be, first in our lives. Paul doesn't say it with any explanation other than look what he did, look who he is, look at his references, look at his resume. Surely we should be putting him first. Surely he should be preeminent. This is your reasonable service. Paul is saying Jesus can never be and will never be 
one in a list of many gods in the pluralistic culture. He will never be just one of your important priorities. He has to be our only important priority. He has to be first in every aspect of our life because anything else falls short of who he is and what he is worthy of. And also, if I can put it in these terms, anything less than that falls short of who you were made to be. Because if you were created to be in the image of God, then does it not make sense that we align with the design, that we align with the designer and make him first? He exists in a class all by himself. And church, this is where my words and my excitement fail me because I cannot adequately describe how important and how deep and how ultimate these words are. I cannot, for me to try and describe God in all his power and omniscience and omnipotence and and all this that God is, is, is just laughable. But thankfully, I have the Holy Spirit who can speak, who can draw, who can woo you to himself. Because what I know is this. I was created for Jesus. You were created for Jesus. And Paul says, and I would echo him, we should put Jesus first in our lives. That my primary purpose in my life, you want to know the calling upon your life, is to follow Jesus. It is not to do better in your business. It's not to fulfill those three, five, ten year goals that you might have. It's not to be a great parent. It's not to be a great husband or wife or citizen or anything else. All of these things are great. That is not your purpose in life because if it is, then you are dumbing your life down. Lift your eyes to the eternal purpose that God has placed upon your life. His name is Jesus, and it's your purpose to know him deeper and better and discover his will for your life. But be careful, because he might give you a vision just like he gave a vision to a certain friend of ours who will remain nameless for reasons that you can figure out. Who spoke earlier on today, they followed a call Fulfill the call. Because when you press into Jesus, he has a habit of raising the bar on our lives as well. Friends, we have to place him first in everything. So this is where the questions come. As a Christian, do we place him first in our priorities? Or is our agenda before his? Do we place him first in our time? To quote somebody who I should have looked up where these three T's came from because they're certainly not mine. Do we place Jesus' priority in our time, in our talents, and in our treasure? Do we actually say, Jesus, you get first choice in my time? Not just the good enough time, not just the squeezing in time, not just the priority that we're going to place. But actually, Jesus, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to place you first. I'm going to place you first, not last thing at night. I'm not going to give you the good enough, the leftovers of the day, that I'm actually going to place you first. I'm going to place you first in my service and my, in my willingness to follow through with the things you have called me to do. I'm going to commit to my church. I'm going to connect with biblical community. I'm going to get involved in groups. I'm going to get involved in serving. I'm going to get involved in different ways in my city. I'm going to place you first in my time. I'm going to place you first in my talents, in my gifts, my strengths, the things that I've been wired to be good at. I'm going to give them to you in the prayer that you would use them powerfully. 
and then I'm going to put you first in the treasure that after all, every penny of it is yours anyway, and I'm just called to be a good steward. And I'm going to stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before me that, that, that thought and envisioned this church called Willow Park Church, who sacrificed themselves sacrificed their lives, sacrificed everything to build on this church that we call home. That we too have this ability and this, this abling to put our treasure before God and say, use it, it's all yours anyway, rather than holding on to it in the vain hope that we know better. Does he just get the good enough? Do we place him first in our families, in our marriages, in our careers, in our ministry, in our loves, our pleasures, our eating, our drinking, our playing, our conversations, our fitness, our health? Do we place him first in what we watch, in what we listen to, what we read, what we surf? And I'm not talking about the ocean. The whole, I should have written this down because this was a last minute thought this morning. The whole of the universe bends into Jesus. And yet there are days when I expect him to bend into my life. That's why Paul said, it's just your logical service, Glenn, to put him first. That literally the whole of the universe will bow a knee to him one day. And yet somehow I expect him to bow a knee to me and my agenda every other day. And the reality is, is that it makes sense Because he is the best at actually, the designer is the one who is best able to fix what's going on in this world. He knows what he's doing. So recently I've been having a bit of a fight. And it's one that I've been losing, but recently I actually feel like I've won temporarily. And it is a fight against something at my house called the garage door. This might not mean anything to you. You might, not, you might think that I am completely crazy. Well, that ship has already sailed if you've been around long enough. But this fight with my garage door is it's steadily gotten worse and worse, my electric garage door, to the point where when it comes over, I, won't, I, I should take a video. It would have been fascinating to watch. Um, it, it buckled with a loud bang, and it was starting to split. And I said to Sarah two months ago, we need to get a new garage door, which we do. The splits in it, the bang, the, 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 uh, when I press the button and the, 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 the motor whirring and straining all tells me that I need a new garage door. I told Sarah we need to get a new garage door. So we got a couple of quotes and they were like ridiculously expensive. Like, I'm sorry, there's way better uses of our money than a garage door. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. Thank you for those who are laughing. A little, little too loudly at the back, I have to say. So uh, I, I got myself some, and some, some metal, some JB welds, some bolts. Some, I was even ready to weld it. I got a new hinge. I mean, it is the ugliest garage door you've ever seen in your life. But it works. No buckle, no loud bang. Great. For now. Because I can already see the starts of some other splits that I haven't put JB Weld on, and I haven't bolted, and I haven't changed, because I'm just not going to be able to keep up with the decay. Friends, we are all garage doors. We all buckle in the wrong places. We're all splitting apart in different ways. We all make loud noises when we go under strain. Various loud noises. 
Things are not looking good. We need a replacement. We don't need just a patch-up fix that we think is going to be fine. What we need is the designer, the person who knows how to fix to come and replace the thing at a cost. But it's a cost I'm unwilling to pay. I'd rather fix it myself. I know what I'm doing. Give me a bit of JB Weld. Give me a bit more money in my bank account. Give me another husband. Give me another wife. Give me a different kid. I can fix this. Maybe if I moved location. Maybe if I got a different job. If I could only get a promotion. If that boss would just leave JB Weld, a bit of duct tape, be fine. It'll stop making noise for a bit. What we need is the designer to come and replace it. And that is the promise of Jesus Christ, because Paul does it in far more theological terms when he talks about this. He says, everything will be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. This word reconcile means he's going to make it new, that your life can be made new. And not only your life, but all things. So even creation that is groaning will be made new. That Jesus Christ, who is, uh, who is, God is pleased to dwell, is going to reconcile to himself all things. He's going to heal the chasm. He's going to get rid of the splits. He's going to not need to use duct tape and all the other things we reach to. It's in himself. And he draws us to himself by the blood of the cross, Paul says. By his death. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That by Jesus Christ, willingly going to the shameful cross, and it's a shameful cross because your sin and my sin is shameful. And by dying on the cross, my sin, through my belief in him, dies with him. And he is the firstborn of the dead, which means that he rose from the dead, thereby giving me newness of life. So I don't need to fix things up anymore. It's all new. I'm reconciled back. He has given me everything that I need in order to align with the design that he initially created me for. So why? He's the head of the body. Don't skip on. And you... I'm not going to go through all this in detail. I just want to highlight, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. The reason he did all this was to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the the scriptures talk about atonement, that we can become one with God again, that we can actually fulfill that which we were created to do, that sin ordinarily has separated us from, that sin has been removed, so we can actually have a relationship and a oneness with God, at-one-ment, atonement. And then he says, go live your life. Go dance your dance to a music that only a few will hear, that maybe in your lifetime they won't hear that music at all. But they'll remember your dance. They'll remember how you've lived your life. They'll remember the words that you used. They'll remember the Jesus that you pointed to. And as they observe your dance, they'll look for the music. And then the Holy Spirit himself will draw them to Jesus himself 
And the power of God will bring them to salvation. That's the way it works. And it starts with us trusting Jesus. Because if he can hold the whole universe together, I'm fairly sure that he can sort out my problems. So my prayer for you in finishing is simply this. My prayer is that you would know that he can hold you together. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you think is going to split your life apart, he is the one who can sustain you and hold you together because he willingly went to the cross and proved himself worthy of our adoration and our trust. But putting him first in our lives means we have to trust him first. And we've all been times in our lives when we have said, no, actually, I'm making myself king or queen of my life. I don't need him. So we're going to sing a song. And I want to encourage you as we finish and as we sing this song, I want you to make this a prayer, this moment of confession. And I want you to ask yourself, what is it you're placing first in your life? What dance, what music are you listening to? And is it time today to trust him first? And if it is, in all seriousness, you can fill out a connect card, you can do the QR code, and you can let us know that I want to know more about being a Jesus follower. I want to know more about being a Christian. Or maybe you just want some prayer, and you can let us know through that way as well. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray. To the one who is first, who is powerful, who is beautiful. Lord, I pray now as we just finish our gathering together in worship and in praise, that Lord, it won't be about the song or the words or who's singing and who's not, but Lord, it will be about me, my heart, my trust, my priorities laying them out before you, which is my reasonable and logical service. But Lord, I pray that whatever few words these wonderful people remember from the last few minutes, that God, that they would find good ground, good soil, and it would grow. Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me. Call me and fix me. Thank you, Jesus.